chapter 17 through 21, give to us, we talked about last time, these last five chapters, really a snapshot of the grievous spiritual condition and climate at this time in the nation of Israel historically and the grievous moral condition of the nation at this time as well. And, and as we look at this, it's, it almost seems like kind of an appendix perhaps to the end of this time historically of the judges. Uh, we see what happens when a nation does not want God's blueprint for the way it would conduct itself in its culture and its lifestyle. When a people determine that they do not want any rules, uh, they don't want a blueprint, they don't want boundaries, they don't want any restraints upon their lives morally, spiritually, when a society leaves God's principles, and understand, these are a people who began with a good and godly foundation. We've seen this from the book of Genesis to this point. This is the, the people of God. They had the law of God and the, the sacrificial system and the priesthood and the tabernacle and, and the presence of God. And these are people who had a wonderful beginning. But when a society or a people, a nation, whatever, despite its beginning, does not want God's principles wants to thrust God out of its culture and out of its existence and does not want God's authority within it, uh, this is what we see becomes the outcome really here in these chapters. And if there's no other lesson for us, that certainly is the great overriding lesson. Chapter 17 and 18 we saw last time, the spiritual confusion and the spiritual compromise that was going on at this time uh, historically. I mean, just complete idolatry and a mingling of, of worldly ideas and carnal fleshly attitudes and a disregard for the word of God, but yet still going through the formalities of religion and religiosity, but yet just total spiritual confusion. And what things we then read next here in chapters 19, 20, and 21, really uh, that condition of spiritual confusion, when spiritual confusion and compromise begins, it always then contributes to the next phase which is then moral deterioration in the lifestyles and the ways in which people live in a culture as they begin to lose a value system. And what things we're going to read in this section of scripture tonight that are recorded, let me just say they are utterly repulsive. Honestly, utterly repulsive. And, and I think it shows to us the potential of human depravity. That God chose to reveal this in his word to record these things does not certainly by any means when we see something recorded in the word of God mean that God approves it or God endorses it, that it's God's desire, but God records it. God is honest and he reveals to us how low human beings can actually sink. I mean, how corrupt we can actually become how calloused, how cruel, and, and it's really in some ways, I, I think, intended almost for the shock value to cause us to think that when we want to think, oh, men are basically good, to realize how faulty that thinking is and to realize how intensely wicked and evil and corrupt and callous we can become as a people when God is not a part of our lives or our culture or our nation as a people. If we disconnect from God and his ways and start allowing ourselves to play God and be the judge of what's right, the extent of evil we are able to sink to is shocking. It's sobering, and these chapters show us that. Uh, I think the only value, perhaps, of why maybe this is recorded is to really repulse us and to, as I said, caution us 
to realize where we could sink to as a people. I hope by the grace of God for myself and for those of you in this room this evening, I hope we never lose a sense of the fear and, and trepidation of the capacity of what our flesh is able to do and what we are really able to become in and of ourselves apart from the restraining power of God's spirit and grace working in our lives that our potential in our flesh does not lack anyone else on this planet and where we can sink to as well as a nation as we drive God away what can begin to happen so let's dive in together chapter 19 verse 1 it says it came to pass in those days when again, we've seen this many times, this was the problem. There was no king in Israel. There was a vacuum of leadership. People weren't submitting to an authority. There wasn't the safety of an authority and a leadership figure giving guidance, but also restraining the evil among humanity in that day. It says there was a certain Levite. Now that's tragic because they're men. Remember again, the Levites were the tribe of ministers in the nation of Israel. These are supposed to be the ministers among God's people. This is the line from which the priesthood came, the tribe of Levi, those who worked in the tabernacle. They were supposed to be teaching the word of God, being examples to the people of God. So this is a Levite, which kind of emphasizes the tragedy of this. It says there was a Levite staying in a remote mountains of Ephraim, and he took for himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. Now, a, a concubine, understand, was basically sort of like a, a secondary wife. It was in a legal sense. Uh, I, I hate to use the term second class, but that's in some ways kind of a good description of what a concubine was. It, it was really more of a wife that you could purchase. It was a legal contract where you would, through finances, procure yourself a concubine and you would honor your obligation as a man to provide for the physical needs of this woman to keep a roof over her head and clothing and and provide food for her and her responsibility basically was to supply to you in exchange sexual pleasure or giving you more offspring and it was more of really a a a arranged uh, business type relationship where basically you purchased for yourself for the price of food and clothing and shelter someone else to fulfill your sexual pleasures and uh, to uh, give you further offspring beyond your one wife that you were supposed to have so here we have this Levite and he has now got for himself a concubine something again outside of God's will he has a concubine in verse 2 but this concubine, it says, played the harlot against him. So she abandoned the contractual relationship. She went off and solicited herself, it seems, into another relationship and went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah and was there for four months. So her little fling for the time period it was with some other man didn't work out as she hired herself out for harlotry away from the Levite she was with. So she does what in some ways any broken girl perhaps would, would want to do. She, she, she goes back home to her father's house and she returns back to her father's house. She's there for a time period of four months and it says then verse three, her husband, again, this was a, a legal arrangement, arose and went after her to speak kindly to her and bring her back, having his servant and a couple of donkeys with him. So she brought him into her father's house. And when the father of the young woman saw him, he was glad to meet him. Could indicate this was the first time he was ever 
meeting him. So he goes back. He decides, you know, I, I kind of miss having her around after four months. He goes and pursues her, tries to sweet talk her, goes to his father-in-law's house, if you would, to try and bring her back home with him. And verse 4 says his father-in-law, the young woman's father, detained him. And he stayed there with him for three days. So they ate and drank and lodged there. And then it came to pass on the fourth day that they arose early in the morning and stood to depart. But the young woman's father said to his son-in-law, refresh your heart with a morsel of bread and and then afterward go your way. Stick around and uh, have dinner, hang out one more night and, and you can leave later. So they sat down and the two of them ate and drank together. And the young woman's father said to the man, please, Be content to stay all night. Let your heart be merry. And when the man stood to depart, his father-in-law urged him, so he lodged there again. So he's detained him now there for a few days. And then he arose, verse 8, early in the morning on the fifth day to depart. But the young woman's father said to him, please refresh your heart. So they delayed until afternoon and both of them ate. I like this father. He's trying to keep his daughter as long as he can. As a dad of three girls, that, that resonates with me. That's what I got out of the Bible study right there. (laughs) verse 9 and when the man stood to depart he and his concubine and his servant his father-in-law the young woman's father said to him look the day is now drawing toward evening please it's getting late again spend the night see the day is coming to an end lodge here that your heart may be merry and tomorrow you can get on your way early so that you may get home however the man verse 10 was not willing to spend the night so he arose and departed and came opposite Jebus, that is Jerusalem. But at this time, Jerusalem was not yet occupied by God's people. It should have been, but they hadn't driven the, the Jebusites out of it. That's why it was still called Jebus. And with him, it says, were two saddled donkeys and his concubine also with him. And they went near Jebus and the day was far spent. And the servant that was with this Levite man said to him, come to his master, please. Uh, let's turn aside into this city of the Jebusites and lodge in. In other words, daylight's starting to close out on us. Let's let's find somewhere to shelter for the night and, and uh, get out of the open uh, area of, of the roads and, and lodge in an actual city that's settled. And he wants to turn into the city where the Jebusite people live. But verse 12, his master said to him, to that idea, we will not turn aside here into a city of foreigners, that is people who aren't Jews, not our Israelite brethren, the people of God. He says, who are not the children of Israel. We will go on to Gibeah. That's another few more miles away. And he said to his servant, come, let us draw near to one of these places and spend the night in Gibeah or in Ramah. So his reasoning is, look, let's, if we're going to stay somewhere overnight, let's not stay in a town where God's people aren't out. Uh, let's travel a few miles further to Gibeah or to Ramah and, and get into the area where we can be among the people of God. Because he's thinking they share our same values and morals and, and we'll be, here's he's thinking, safer there. Little did he know. So he wants to get to an area where God's people would be to Gibeah or Ramah. In verse 14, they passed by and went and the sun went down on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. That is in the area of the tribe of Benjamin. And they turned aside to go in to lodge in Gibeah. And when he went in, he sat down in the open square of the city 
for no one would take them into his house to spend the night. So they go into the area, and this was very customary. You go into the town square area, and you kind of sit there. And in this culture, again, it's hard for us to rationalize. Again, remember, there's no Motel 6, there's no Hilton, there's, uh, you, you know, th this hospitality was a way of life in this ancient culture. So typically, as a traveler, this is what you would do. You'd go to the open square. People were very hospitable. It was perceived even as an honor to bring someone into your home and not just that it was an honor in some ways a traveler from a distant area was kind of like free entertainment it was tv for the night there were no tvs yet there were no ipods and ipads and cell phones and internet service or dvds or red box or there was no news media you couldn't go on cnn and find out what was happening a, a little ways over in a different area the way you found out was wow there, this is a traveler from a different area and, and if he spent the night at the house it was exciting after so tell us what's going on over there in Bethlehem and over in that area and oh well let me tell you what's happening when I was there and, and when you pat so this was something not only was it customary and considered a privilege but it was a very normal thing so it's very unusual when you read here in verse 15 no one would take him in to spend the night that would be very unusual. That should have been an indicator right now. Wait a minute. How come nobody's inviting us to their house? And I can tell you the reason why you're going to see in advance is because they know if you invite somebody into your house, you're going to have some trouble at your house that night because there's some really shady characters in this town. And because of that, people don't want to entangle themselves with a guest because they know what happens to guests. Apparently, when you come into Gibeah, watch what happens. Verse 16. Just then an old man came in from his work in the field, however, who was also from the mountains of Ephraim, right where this Levite was from. And he was staying in Gibeah, whereas the men of that place were Benjamites. So he was just staying in that area, but he was from the area of Ephraim. And when he raised his eyes and saw the traveler in the open square of the city, and the old man said to him, hey, where are you going and where do you come from? So he said to him, we are passing from Bethlehem in Judah toward the remote mountains of Ephraim. He said, oh, get out of town. Somebody from my home area of Ephraim. So he says, I am from there. I went to Bethlehem in Judah. He says, and we're going now to the house of the Lord, but there is no one who will take me into his house. Although we have both straw and fodder for our donkeys and bread and wine for myself, for your female servant, the concubine that was with him, and also for the young man, who is with your servant, there is no lack of anything. In other words, what the Levite is saying to him is, listen, we're low maintenance. You know, we're not looking for a handout. We have plenty of supplies, food, feed for the animals. We're just looking for somewhere to lay our head down at night, to have a little bit of shelter so we're not in the elements. And, and he says, that we're, we're not looking to get a handout, just looking for somewhere to spend the night. Well, verse 20, the old man said to him, peace be with you. However, let all your needs be my responsibility. Only, he says, do not spend the night in the open square. You wouldn't want to do that, not in our town. So he brought him into his house and gave him the fodder to the donkeys. And they washed their feet. That was customary. And they ate and drank. And as they, verse 22, here it comes, were enjoying themselves, suddenly certain men of the city perverted men surrounded the house and beat on the door and they spoke to the master of the house to the old man saying bring out the man who came into your house that we may know him carnally 
So here come these individuals from the town. It seems, again, that this wasn't something that was surprising, but probably rather frequent when a new person ventured through their area and they come pounding on the door in their demanding tone. And basically what we have here indicated in the scriptures, quite frankly, militant homosexuality. This isn't just a request. This is militant homosexuality. They are basically demanding, send him out here to us. What do they want? They want to commit gang rape in a homosexual way. Send him out here to us that we might know him carnally. This is their homosexual lusts are, are not only very strong, but I mean, they are literally aggressively demanding, beating on the door, send him out here to us that we may rape him in a homosexual way. Verse 23, but the man, the master of the house went out to them and said, no, my brethren, I beg you. Notice, do not act so wickedly. Well, that's accurate. See, this man has come into my house. Do not commit this outrage. Well, that's good. That's accurate too. This is wicked. He says, this would be an outrage. Now you have to understand as well too, this was part of Eastern hospitality. Unlike you and I, in Eastern hospitality, if someone came under your roof, you felt honor bound. It was sort of a code of a way of life and hospitality. You found honor bound to completely be 100% responsible for their welfare, for their safety, for their provision. So this was a very serious thing for them. So he's coming to their defense, one, because of the code of hospitality in the Eastern culture, but also he has some sense that, that this is wrong. This is unnatural. This is abnormal behavior to want to do such a thing. Now, it would have been good if he would have stopped there. But look what happens as we go on. Verse 24. Here's his solution now. Look, here is my virgin daughter and the man's concubine. Let me bring them out now. Humble them and do with them as you please. Are you kidding me? But to this man, do not do such a vile thing. Now, I can't help but to look at that and to think, are, are you, that's the solution? Your solution to this is basically save your neck by shoving your virgin daughter or the concubine woman in the house out the door. This is your way of resolving this. Uh, I mean, talk about a total distortion of reasoning. Do you see where people are at in the culture at this time historically that this is the reasoning of a, of a father? Of a father that he would say, listen, don't do this to this man. He's my guest and that would be perverted. That's, that's sexual perversion to have homosexual relations and, and to gang rape this man. However, let me give you a better solution. I know you have strong sexual lusts raging through your body. Here, why don't you take my virgin daughter and humble her and do whatever you want and please yourself with her instead. And that's his solution to that. I mean, the reasoning, the monstrous, crazy reasoning in this process, and, and my thing as well is, w w where's the backbone of manhood here? This is your solution? Well, why not instead say, no, wait a minute, I'm a man, I'm called to protect those who are vulnerable 
and those who may be weaker, not to basically passively say, here, you know what, uh, just have your way if you'll go away and leave us alone and give us some peace and quiet. I mean, the sadness of the passivity of manhood here that there's no protection of women, no protection of one's family. I mean, the I almost said a word I probably shouldn't say in regards to, to, to manhood, but I mean, just this is part of a deteriorating culture. I mean, this is this is tragic here. Uh, the, the lack of a father to truly, you know, protect and to stand up for his children and that he would subject his children to hurt and harm to do what's best for him and his own interests. I mean, this is just so unfortunate. I mean, the grotesqueness of this time historically. Verse 25, notice it says, but the men would not heed him. So the man then took his concubine, this is the Levite now, and he brought her out to them and they knew her and they, it says, the Holy Spirit records, abused her all night. So they gang raped the concubine woman all night long, the group of men until morning, until when the day began to break, they let her go. And the woman came as the day was dawning and fell down at the door of the man's house where the master was till it was light. And when her master arose in the morning, now don't read past that. When her master arose in the morning, what does that tell you? The guy slept all night long. It didn't even bother his conscience. Again, to save his own neck, he shoves a woman out the door and he says, just abuse and rape her all night long. I need to get some sleep. I mean, he wakes up in the morning, opens the doors of the house and went to go his way where was his concubine there fallen at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. She made it there grabbing the threshold. And he said to her, get up. And let us be going. A little lack of compassion there, obviously. That's an understatement. Get up. Let's, let's get going. He didn't realize she was dead. But there was no answer. So the man lifted her onto his donkey and got up and went to his place. And when he entered his house, he took a knife and laid hold of his concubine, her corpse anyway, divided her into 12 pieces, limb by limb, cut her up, and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. The idea of 12 pieces is one piece of the corpse to the different tribes. So imagine just the pieces of a, of a human body basically cut up. I mean, just one, an arm and a leg. And probably there was perhaps some note attached to it as he's trying to make a statement here. He's so outraged and enraged, which is rather bizarre given his condition himself personally in reasoning. In verse 30, it says, So it was when all who saw this, the parts going all over the nation, receiving a body part of a, a dead corpse, they said, No such deed has been done or seen from the day that the children of Israel came up from the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, confer, and speak up. So he did what he intended to do. He stirred up like shock and awe and where people were you know, just completely astounded by this and they want to get to the bottom. What is this? This is barbaric. This is out of control and now everyone is aroused throughout the whole nation uh, in anger and, and they want to find out what's going on. So chapter 20 says, all the children of Israel came out from Dan to Beersheba. Dan is in the north, Beersheba is in the south, the whole nation, the idea is. As well as from the land of Gilead and the congregation gathered together as one man before the Lord at Mizpah 
And the leaders of the people and all the tribes presented themselves in the assembly of the people of God. 400,000 foot soldiers who drew the sword. So they're ready to, to go to war and purge this evil, whatever has happened within their country. Now the children of Benjamin heard that the children of Israel had gone up to Mizpah and the children of Israel said, tell us, how did this wicked deed happen? So they're now asking the Levite man, what in the world happened? Why did you do this? So verse four, the Levite answered of the woman who was murdered and said, my concubine, verse four, and I went into Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin to spend the night. And the men of Gibeah rose against me and surrounded the house at night because of me. And they intended to kill me, but instead they ravished my concubine so that she died. Boy, he kind of polished that up, didn't he? Take no responsibility. It's typical when men are in this condition. Verse 6, so I took hold of my concubine, cut her in pieces, and sent her throughout all the territory of the inheritance of Israel. Because they committed lewdness and outrage in Israel. Look, all... He says, are you children of Israel? Give your advice and counsel here and now. Tell What do you think we should do? This is, this is horrible. Certainly it was. It was a violation. I mean, rape and uh, these, these were capital offenses according to the law of Moses uh, that people should be put to death when they committed these crimes. So all the people, it says, verse 8, arose as one man saying, none of us will go to his tent nor will any turn back to his house. But now this thing which we will do to Gibeah, we will go up against it by lot. So we're going to declare war against the people of Gibeah. Uh, verse 10 describes how they would take basically a 10% draft of all their numbers and go and repay, says the end of verse 10, all repay all the vileness that they have done in Israel. And the men of Israel were gathered together against the city, united as one man. So they're ready to go level judgment and to, in a sense, purge this evil and bring judicial sentence against it because of what vile crimes have happened. Verse 12, and the tribes of Israel sent, it says, men through all the tribe of Benjamin where this had happened, saying to them, confronting them, what is this wickedness that has occurred among you? Verse 13, look, they try and reason with the whole tribe. Now, therefore, deliver up the men, the perverted men who are in Gibeah, that we may put them to death and remove evil from Israel. So they go to the tribe of Benjamin, which should take accountability for their people among their tribe. And they say, look, this doesn't need to go further than what it is, but you are lodging criminals. You are lodging perverted, vile men who have gang-raped and abused and committed an atrocity. Deliver up these men that we might judge them properly, that we might purge the evil from our nation. So they say, deliver up these criminals that you're harboring in your territory there in Benjamin. Verse 13 says, but the children of Benjamin, notice, would not listen to the voice of their brethren, the children of Israel. So whether this was stubbornness or their idea of what compassion was in a confused way, they, they refused to cooperate. Instead, the children of Benjamin gathered together from their cities. And Gibeah says to go out to battle against the children of Israel. And from their cities at that time, the children of Benjamin numbered 26,000 men who drew the sword beside the inhabitants of Gibeah who numbered 700 select men. So they don't want to cooperate. They're not going to turn over the criminals. 
They're going to harbor them. They, they become kind of resistant and, and get antagonistic. And rather than just cooperate and let the situation be resolved instead, what basically now happens is a civil war, the first recorded one in the, in, uh, the Old Testament, the first civil war erupts among the nation of Israel where basically all of the nation of Israel enters into a civil war against the tribe of Benjamin and a horrific amount of bloodshed takes place. Now, again, for sake of time and finishing up this section here, let me just summarize kind of what happens here. Basically, a series of three battles takes place at this point in this civil war. And thousands of casualties happen. Over 65,000 men die as the result of this. Do you see the exponential effects of sin and when it's not dealt with in a society, in a nation, the ripple effects of what ultimately begins to happen, how it begins to defile and cause a horrific problem. I mean, 65,000 people die in a civil war over these events that happened in one little local community. The, the ultimate outfall of all that. Israel loses the first two battles, but they keep fighting because, and again, I think that's a good reminder too, even though they lost at first, they were seeking to fight against evil. And sometimes when you're fighting against evil, you may have to lose a little bit, but that's okay. You incur some losses. When you're fighting against evil, don't stop fighting. And they, they lose the first two battles. Ultimately, God gives them counsel how to set an ambush to where they then win the third battle and they defeat the entire tribe of Benjamin. The problem is, is they almost exterminate the entire tribe of Benjamin because of the incredible anger and the horrific warfare. Look at the end of the chapter, verse 46. It kind of gives us that synopsis here. It says in verse 46 of chapter 20, so all who fell, that is died, of Benjamin that day were 25 thousand men who drew the sword all these were men of valor but 600 men turned and fled to the wilderness to the rock of Rimmon and they stayed at the rock of Rimmon for four months the idea is hiding looking for a sanctuary of safety and the men of Israel then turned back against the children of Benjamin and they struck down with the edge of the sword from every city in Benjamin it says men and beasts and all who were found, women, children, they just started slaughtering, putting to death, widespread death and killing throughout the entire tribe of Benjamin. And then they set fire to all the cities they came to. So what the Bible's telling us here is this got so bad, by the end of it, there were only 600 people left of the entire tribe of Benjamin. They almost exterminated the entire tribe because of these events that took place. Only 600 men who were hiding for four months who were able to escape and find refuge, but all the other men, women, and children had been put to death. Now, chapter 21 doesn't get much better. Look what happens. It says, Now the men of Israel had sworn. That means past tense. So this had happened in the midst of all these events and the warfare. The men of Israel had sworn an oath back at Mizpah saying, none of us shall give his daughters 
to Benjamin as a wife. So when all this started happening, they said, them grotesque, rotten Benjamites would do this and they won't turn over criminals to us. Look, we're, we're, we, are, we are never doing anything with them again. None of us. Let's take an oath. We will never give our daughters to their sons. They are pigs and they are cruel and barbaric. And they said, yeah, that's right. And they took an oath and said, we will never give our daughters to any of them in companionship or marriage, no way. And they had taken this oath, which now begins to become a problem for them, this rash oath that they had taken, because it says, verse 2, Then the people came to the house of God and remained there before God till evening. And they lifted up their voices and wept, these are the people of Israel nationally, and said, O oh Lord God of Israel, why has this come to pass in Israel that today... There should be one tribe missing in Israel. They were realizing, oh my goodness, there may be only 11 tribes very soon because all that's left now is 600 men. And if those 600 men have no wives, guess what that means? When those 600 men die, there's no more tribe of Benjamin. So now they're concerned from a patriotic standpoint. Why has this happened, God, they're saying? Verse 4, so it was the next morning that the people rose early and built an altar there and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. Now, pause here for a minute. I want to say this. It appears they're going through all the right motions here. They're praying. They're making sacrifices and offerings. They're worshiping. Here's the thing. They're going through the motions of prayer and worship about this situation, but they don't wait on God for his guidance for the solution. So basically what transpires here, and this is another problem with culture at times and a, a, a deterioration of people, is they're seeking the Lord, but it's just a formality. They're, 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 it's just a formality, doing the worship, saying the prayers, but it's just a formality of seeking God and then just doing whatever they want anyway. And sadly, that's the condition some people kind of regress into. I, I assure you this, there are multitudes I'm going to get in trouble for saying that but there are multitudes of people in this country that their spiritual life is nothing but a formality it's a formality they attend a certain building they push that button say this say that sit up stand down sing this say that whatever and they go through all the formalities some of us have done this at one point I'm certain they go through all the formalities of religiosity but then they just live their lives however they want and they just do whatever they want. And this is what happens here. They're saying prayers. They're offering offerings. But instead of waiting on God for a solution, watch what happens as the chapter closes. They just do whatever they want. They don't wait for God's direction. They don't follow God's will. They just come up with their own plan. It says the children of Israel said, verse 5, Who is there among the tribes of Israel that didn't come up to the assembly of the Lord? That is when we entered into battle to attack the people of Benjamin. For they also apparently had made a great oath concerning anyone who had not come up to the Lord at Mizpah, saying, whoever didn't join us in battle, they should surely die. Again, when they got together and when this outrage happened of the concubines' parts being sent over the land, apparently when they all came together and they were you know, jazzed up and angry and we're going to get these people and you know, get rid of these horrible people and, and they said, hey, whoever doesn't go with us in this battle, they deserve to die. Yeah, whoever's not with us, they deserve to die. And so now they've created these two oaths here and it creates a dilemma for them because of the rash oaths that they've taken and thinking they need to keep them, which is even worse. So watch what happens, verse 6. The children of Israel grieved for Benjamin their brother and said, Oh no, one tribe 
is cut off from Israel today. What shall we do for wives for these 600 men who remain? Seeing we've sworn to the Lord that we will not give them our daughters as wives. So they said, hmm, wait a minute. Maybe we can take two bad decisions and somehow manipulate it. We can tweak it, find a loophole and make it work out for our good here. So they say, what one is there from the tribes of Israel who didn't come up to Mizpah the Lord? And in fact, hmm, no one came, oh, from Jabesh Gilead? Jabesh Gilead didn't show up to the battle? So they say, okay, well, here's what we'll do. When the people were counted, Jabesh Gilead wasn't there, verse 10, so the congregation sent out 12,000 of their most valiant soldiers and commanded them saying, listen, we got a problem here. We're going to send you out to take care of something. Go and strike the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead with the edge of the sword kill everybody including women and children and this is the thing that you shall do you shall utterly destroy every male and every woman who has not known a man or who has known a man intimately so they found among the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead 400 young virgins who had not known a man intimately and they brought them to the camp of Shiloh which is in the land of Canaan so here's what they're saying we need to get some wives for these 600 men of Benjamin or that tribe's going to be exterminated. So here's what we can do. We made that oath when we were really mad and said, we're going to kill whoever didn't show up to the battle. Hey, check around. Who didn't show up to the battle? Hey, wait. those bums in Jabesh Gilead, man. They were punks. They didn't show up. Oh, perfect. I'll tell you what. Send 12,000 people there and just slaughter and murder the women and the children and, and all the men and, and don't let anybody survive except that there are a few virgins. Just bring back the virgins, but murder and destroy. Wipe out that whole group of people and bring us back some women so we can give them the wives as the men of Benjamin. That's a great idea. They're our problem solved. We, we got some wives for them now. So verse 13 says they had brought back 400, keep that in mind, 400 of the virgins from there the whole congregation sent word to the children of Benjamin who were at the rock of Rimen and announced peace to them hey we we want to resolve this we don't want to see you be wiped away from the nation of Israel so Benjamin came back at that time and they gave them the women who they had saved alive the women of Jabesh Gilead notice and yet they had not found enough for them so they still have a problem by golly, there were only 400 virgins. I mean, we killed everybody. We're going to have to go kill more people? There's only 400 virgins, but there's 600 men. So, boy, I mean, we, that only solves two-thirds of our problem. What are we going to do? There's not enough virgins so each man can have a wife. Well, they still have some more scheming left in them. We always have the ability to keep scheming, don't we? Verse 15, so the people grieve for Benjamin... Because, interesting, the Lord had made a void in the tribes of Israel. I have in my Bible written there, question mark, God's fault? They grieved because the, wait, the Lord made a void? It, we're blaming this on the Lord now? All the murder, the bloodshed, the immorality, the horrible reasoning, the carnality, the barbaric things that they're... And, and, and oh, why did the Lord do this? Isn't it amazing the propensity in us as human beings to do the most off-the-wall, foolish, horrific things and then we blame God? 
Why did God let this happen? Why is God allowing this to go? And, and, and we want to shift blame onto God for our selfish behavior or our sinful deeds or our greed or our bloodshed or our problems that we create in our societies and nations and cultures. This is just it's so typical. This is as old as the Garden of Eden here. Why did God create a void? They were grieving over this. We, we're still 200 wives short. What are we going to do? Well, verse 16, they had one more plan up their sleeve. The elders of the congregation said, What shall we do for the wives for those who remain, since the women of Benjamin have been destroyed? And they said, Hmm, there must be an inheritance for the survivors of Benjamin that a tribe may not be destroyed from Israel. However, we cannot give that's the emphasis we cannot give them wives from our own daughters for the children of Israel sworn an oath cursed be the one who gives a wife to Benjamin and they said in fact well maybe we could find another way to do this there is a yearly sacrifice a feast of the Lord in Shiloh which is north of Bethel on the east side of the highway that goes up from Bethel to Shechem in the south of Labona Therefore, they instructed the children of Benjamin, these 600 men, probably the 200 really that were left, saying, listen, here's what you do. There's going to be this feast over in this area of Shiloh. Go and hide yourself in the vineyards. And you hide there in the vineyards. And at the time of the harvest, the women will be out dancing in the fields as they're celebrating the Lord's harvest. And you hide in the vineyards, verse 21, and watch. And just when the daughters come out, to perform their dances, then just slip out from the vineyards and every man, catch himself a wife, kidnap yourself a woman, you know, throw her over your shoulder, let's just, with your bat and take her home, you know, just catch yourself a woman. Now, now we're endorsing kidnapping. This is a good idea. Just, just snag one of those women when they're out there dancing, the 200, make sure you get yourself a wife. And then go back to the land of Benjamin. And look at this, verse 22. And then it shall be when the fathers of these kidnapped girls or their big brothers come to us and complain, well, what's going on here? Well, they just stole our sisters and stole our daughters. That we'll say to them, listen, be kind to them for our sakes because we did not take a wife for any of them in the war. For it is not as though you have given the women, they say, to them at this time, making yourselves guilty of this oath. In other words, let's they can get off on a technicality here. I mean, we did. We said we wouldn't give our wives, or we would give our daughters to them as wives, but we didn't say they couldn't take them from us. We just said we wouldn't give them to them. I mean, isn't it amazing how crazy the reasoning of human beings can become? I mean, do you ever, I hope, by the grace of God, certainly if you know the Lord and you're illuminated with the spirit of truth, I hope once in a while you watch the news or the media and you just go, this is insanity. This is insanity. There's not even logic to this. The reasoning, the mindset of what wants to be proposed or endorsed or encouraged or allowed or, or, or engaged in, in our culture in regards to things that people want to do and the reasoning, the manipulative behavior and matters, the, the, the loopholes, the technicalities, the selfish agenda to just abuse people to get what you want. And because this is your preference, you're going to go into a, a, a changing room where my wife and daughters are at? I don't think so. I don't think so. 
but I mean, the, the insanity that we even think that this, well, yeah, it all makes sense. No, it makes sense for the one person who wants to fulfill their selfish indulgence. But it takes no consideration of the greater population of what everybody else's welfare or benefit or even what normal reasoning would be. And here, I mean, you look at these chapters, the reasoning, the mindset. Again, this is what I said earlier. When spiritual confusion and compromise happens and a disregard for God and his word goes out the window, moral deterioration is like a landslide. And the way that people start to think and reason and the way they behave and the loopholes and technicalities and justifying wrongdoing, I mean, this is just uh, unreal. Well, verse 23 says, the children of Benjamin did so. They thought, hey, it's a great idea. As soon as they dance, we'll find out which one we like the best. And they caught themselves a wife. I'll take that one. And they went and returned to their inheritance, verse 23, and rebuilt their cities and dwelt them. And the children of Israel then departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family. And they went out from there and every man to his inheritance. Verse 25, the key, this is the reason why we've seen it again and again. Verse 25, in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It was moral relativism. It was existentialism manifested, the anarchy, the reasoning. People didn't do what was right in the sight of God. Everybody played God for themselves. They just did what was right in their own eyes. There was an absence of a reverence for an authority of, of God and there was no strong leadership and because of that, the society deteriorated and conditions became the way they, they read it. This was the purpose behind it. Let me leave you with, with a few final lessons just by way of summary of what we've looked at. A couple of things I would say in regards to things. First of all, whenever a person disobeys, their life will start to decay. Whoever disobeys, and when a person disobeys, their life will decay. And let me say a step further, and whenever a people then start to disobey, a society will start to decay. And a lot of times what you see here in this text is the same kind of characterizations. Uh, complete, unrestrained sexual expression. If you want it, you go get it. And you be as aggressive as you want in your agenda and whether people are going to cooperate with you or not, if you want it, you get aggressive and you go get it. Unrestrained sexual expression, life has no value. Do you notice the diminishing of the value of life? I mean, they're murdering people, constant casualties because life had no more value. And that's what happens in these times. The value of life goes out the window in a nation. Nobody values the life of the unborn, the life of people, murders, brutality, the life of the elderly, euthanasia. This is what happens. And, and let me say this too. When darkness begins to infiltrate and close in, ladies and gentlemen, this is when we need leaders with courage. And I'm not talking about you have to have a position of leadership. I'm talking about just be a person of leadership. Someone who has the courage in the midst of the darkness to arise with courage and just to be what Jesus commanded us to be anyway, which is the salt of the earth. A preservative against moral decay. 
to keep things from decaying, that you would be that one person in your office, that one person in your home, that one person in your neighborhood, your school system, God forbid, the one person maybe even in your church, and I hope it's not this church, that would just say, you know what, I'm not down for the decay. And I'm not looking to be confrontational, but I'm also not going to cooperate. Because this is what is righteous and this is what is harmful and unrighteous and that's destructive and it's going to lead to decay and destruction of lives and that we would be the salt and light by being people of influence and when a society's morality, this is another lesson I think we learn, a society's morality is not safe independent of God's instruction. Whenever society wants to be independent of God's blueprint and God's instruction, that society will never be safe and even as we read here in verse 25 at this time historically as there was no king no ruler no one to be submitted to in the nation of israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes it reminds me of exactly what was said in the days of jesus where they said of jesus listen they said of jesus we will not have this man to reign over us even as nobody wanted a king in that day, they wanted to do what was right in their own eyes. In the day of Jesus, Luke records that the people said, we will not have this man to reign over us. And let me just say, whenever that kind of statement is made of a person, that is a pathway toward self-destruction. I will, but yeah, I mean, I mean, I'll tolerate you, but I, gee, he is not going to rule over me. He's not going to be the master of my soul and the Lord over my life and the final authority. I am still going to be. And whenever a person says, I mean, I'll yeah, kind of uh, interact maybe with some things, but I, he's not going to rule over me. He's not going to reign over me. That's a path to self-destruction. And whenever a culture or even a people or a nation wants to say that, hey, we want to stamp on our money one nation under God, we want to, but we, we want to push all that out practicality-wise, that is a pathway towards self-destruction destruction and we ladies and gentlemen in this day and age we are still supposed to be the salt and the light on this earth we have something to do while we're here the lord hasn't killed us yet and he hasn't brought us home in the rapture yet so in the meantime we need to continue to fulfill our purposes let's stand let's pray together